Hello there, I'm Toby Hayduk, and could this be the end of the Daleks? Welcome to Too Much Information, which aims to tell you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, a television programme about getting into trouble and then out of it again with seconds to spare. Whether you're discovering the episodes for the very first time or you know your Christas from your Christmas invasion, then you're extremely welcome to this odyssey behind the scenes, which aims to go through the series one episode at a time. In this edition, it's an instalment which doesn't quite realise the value of what it is that it's chucking in the bin, and so many of its events have been conveniently ignored ever since. So join me, Toby Haydoke, as I give you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, The Rescue. No, not that one. Or It's Them or Antidus. First broadcast on the 1st of February, 1964, at a quarter past five in the evening. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman. With John Lee as Aladdin, and Philip Bond as Ganatus. It was written by Terry Nation, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by Richard Martin. It was watched by 10.4 million people, and the audience appreciation was 65. Antidus is dangling helplessly down the chasm. The young Thal bravely cuts the rope in order to save his companions, and perishes in the plunge. Despite his sacrifice, the others fear that they'll have to turn back, facing a dead end. But then they see a light and find an entrance to the Dalek city. The Doctor and Susan are prisoners of the Daleks, who plan to cause another nuclear event on Skara. The Doctor begs them not to do this, even offering to build them a TARDIS. But they refuse his offer, saying they can build one themselves. Alidon and a group of Thals assault the city and they meet Ian and co along the way, with the united group attacking the Dalek control centre together. Time is running out, but if they don't stop the Daleks, then the neutron bomb will destroy them all. The When Pre-production, September to December 1963 set breakdown. The initial set breakdown is prepared during this time and outlines basic requirements based upon the current script. It suggests that there will be a new small section of jungle made up from previous sets which have been rearranged. It also has a note for special effects which says Neutron bomb. Power units of a complex pattern of switches and dials. Another new set is another section of cave which is to be very low and blocked with loose shale. And then there is the new interior of scenic booth. They mean sonic booth, but it says scenic, with a passage leading off. This is a small room, no furniture, glass panel in one wall, rather like the control room, with two incline boards and a door to slide. Other than that, the sets required will be jungle, corridors and the Dalek control room, which it says will probably have TV monitors and the interior of the ship, i.e. the TARDIS, all 
from earlier. The design breakdown. The undated, but likely subsequent to the above, design breakdown is now prepared, possibly by Christopher Barry or Richard Martin. It has certain specifications for each set and goes into more detail than the initial breakdown. For the city hall and doorway, it is noted that this is not a large set, but two Daleks appear in this scene. They must have a small truck which appears to be self-propelled. On this is a mechanism which is described as a neutron bomb device. The idea will be to set the machine in motion so that it carries the bomb away from the city limits, where the Daleks cannot go because they are powered by electricity and are not mobile over ordinary ground. The small machine will be like one of those toys that is able to avoid things that get in its way. Set 4 is a small room called the Sonic Room. This is the same size as the cells seen in the previous episodes. Along one side of the wall is a glass panel. Dalek machines may be seen on the other side. It's possible that the reason they've specified it's the same size as the cell is because there is an intention in the back of their minds to reuse elements of that. Set 5 is the instrument room. As described in previous episodes, except now part of the wall has given way to a glass panel so that the Daleks can see into the sonic booth. It is suggested that sets 4 and 5 be made as composite. As well as listing the other sets, the cave, another view of the cave, the jungle clearing slash telephone box, a corridor-like T-junction and the interior of ship by control panel, that's the TARDIS interior and the central column. The document's author notes that I would like recurring shots of the machine carrying the bomb, a model, throughout this episode. Eventually, it will come to rest in the jungle clearing near the ship. In the event, there is no machine, nor is there a neutron bomb for the audience to see. The sonic room observed by the Dalek owes more to the storyline than to the final script. The original title for this episode by the way, is The Execution. 29th of October. It is probably today that Peter Diamond, doubling for Ven, who becomes Antidus, hangs from the rope in the chasm and cuts it for the specially filmed material to feature in this episode. It is the only example of pre-filming for this climactic instalment. At this point, Ven has not yet been cast, although the team know that the character will be blonde, and so he is shot in a wig and Diamond is an approximation of what they think the character will look like when he finally appears, played by an actor, in studio. 25th of November. Christopher Barry, the serial's initial director, sends the costing department a memo reducing the planned design costs of the rescue from £200 to £50. 11th of December. Christopher Barry requests an inlay operator for this episode. Not a complete beginner, please, he begs, as we are expecting inlay shots in this episode, although he admits that the script is not yet with us. 19th of December. Meg Hornby requests on Barry's behalf rosin, which is a resin from pines which is volatile at room temperature and which has been used in previous episodes, both as a smoke producer and an anti-slip dusting for shoes, and a tray to be supplied for use in this episode. 1st of January 1964. 
If the Daleks do sound a little odd this week, maybe it's because they pre-recorded their dialogue today, with Peter Hawkins and David Graham getting their dialogue in the can for the rescue ten days before the episode is recorded, but one day after New Year's Eve and all that it throws at the larynx. 6th of January. Rehearsals begin for the rescue at the Drill Hall, 239 Uxbridge Road. But Verity Lambert, the producer, has an eye on the future and sends a memo regarding the Dalek machines and control panels that are being used in Serial B. The above machines and control panels are at present being stored in Lime Grove Property Department. As you know, we do our last recording of this serial on Friday the 10th of January. I've arranged with Peter Day and Special Effects Department that two of the Dalek machines and the control panels will be stored in the Special Effects Store at Ealing. I would be most grateful, therefore, if you could hold these items until Monday or Tuesday of the week following, when they'll be picked up and taken to Ealing. The other two Dalek machines should also be held for at least a week after the series. 8th of January. Rehearsing for the rescue falls on the day of William Hartnell's 56th birthday. His first birthday as TV's Doctor Who. 10th of January. The rescue is recorded at Studio D, Lime Grove, from 8.30pm onwards. Early on, at approximately 8.45pm, Jonathan Crane, the actor playing Christas, loses his footing and cuts his left arm on part of the scenery. He is given first aid by the attendant fireman, but continues with recording. The accident is witnessed by production assistant Norman Stewart and reported to the BBC the next day, as per procedure. Crane is subsequently contacted, via his agent, Eric Lepine Smith Limited, which is also Hartnell's agency, by Bush Bailey, assistant head of artists bookings at the BBC, to make sure that the wound has healed satisfactorily. And a few days later, Bailey receives a reply from Crane in the affirmative. 15th of January. David Whittaker writes to one of the key people behind the success of the Daleks. He sends Peter Hawkins a letter apologising that In the rush and bustle of rehearsals, I never seem to have a chance to say to you how valuable your contribution has been in the Doctor Who serial. This is a little note to thank you, and I do hope that we meet and work together again. 1st of February. The rescue is broadcast on BBC television. Its 10.4 million viewers matches last week's number, and so it is the joint most-watched episode of Doctor Who to date. Its audience appreciation of 65 is a record high for the series thus far. 3rd of February. In the Daily Mail, Michael Gowers writes... If the fantasies of ABC's The Avengers have congealed into little more than permutated mannerisms, those of the BBC's Doctor Who have certainly caught the imaginations of children, for whom, of course, they are primarily designed. Having destroyed the planet city of those robot beings, the Daleks, the space-time voyagers are now off into a new adventure. There will, I fear, be an aching void in the lives of my six-year-old and his gang, who have been changing themselves into Daleks at every convenient and inconvenient opportunity. 4th of February. The Daily Mirror covers the fact that Verity Lambert has decided to donate two of the Daleks, which of course will no longer be needed because they are all dead, uh, but also seriously because the design bods at the BBC have only offered to store two 
for future use. Space is more of a premium than building materials and time. To a good cause. The Dr Bernardo's home at Stepney Causeway in Ilford will be the happy recipient. 5th of February. Various papers cover the Bernardo's story. In the Daily Herald, Philip Phillips calls them the likeable monsters. Daleks, imaginary creatures from another planet, featured in a BBC children's television serial, were supposed to be frightening monsters. But far from being afraid of the Daleks, child viewers liked them, and there was trouble when the BBC killed off the monsters in last Saturday's episode of the serial Doctor Who. Within 48 hours, the BBC were receiving letters from angry children asking if the Daleks were gone for good. Yesterday, in an effort to please the children, the BBC decided to give two of their four Daleks to Dr Bernardo's homes. Said a BBC spokesman last night, two of the Daleks will be given away, the other two will be kept in store. Monster note, the Daleks had flashing lights and mechanical monotonous voices. They moved on wheels, pushed along by actors sitting inside. For more newspaper coverage of the Bernardo's donation, do become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock. It's more of the same, really, so I'm not withholding anything too important, but it is there for completeness and therefore counts as far too much information. And so it finds its way to my Patreon-exclusive podcast of that name. 6th of February. Janet F. Harris from Leeds writes to the Radio Times, praising Doctor Who. Since the first episode, I've watched BBC TV's Doctor Who on Saturdays with great intensity. I think the series is extremely good and realistic. She writes. When an idea occurs in my mind that a certain fact is impossible, the schoolteacher Mr Chesterton usually voices it and it's immediately expelled from my mind by Doctor Who who asks why is it not possible and gives a credible explanation. The sensible way in which they think out the problems is much better than all the uncontrollable dashing around, getting further and further involved, which so often happens in science fiction. I hope we can have more excellent programmes like this. 7th February. The Kent and Sussex Courier runs a story about the leading man in the wake of the conclusion of the Daleks. He evades the Daleks at weekends, runs the story. William Hartnell, known to millions of Saturday night television viewers as the strange Doctor Who in the popular BBC serial of the same name, escaped from the mysterious and exciting world of Daleks and his time machine for a few precious moments on Saturday. Sipping a glass of stout and puffing on a tipped cigarette, he relaxed with his wife in the Swan Hotel on the Pantiles in Tunbridge Wells after spending the morning shopping at the town. During the afternoon, he chopped wood at his 300-year-old Mayfield cottage, but at 5.15pm, he laid down his axe and became Doctor Who for 25 minutes in a space fiction world shared by millions of children and adults. Monday to Friday, 10am until late at night, he is Doctor Who, the white-haired professor, irritable one moment and laughing the next. Saturday and Sunday, he tries hard, to be Mr William Hartnell of Mayfield, Sussex, a famous actor on the stage, in films and television. But it's an impossible fight, because from now on he will always be known to millions of children as their favourite Doctor Who. The weekend before last, for instance, while sitting in the bar at the Swan Hotel, two small boys sat and watched him while trying to pluck up the courage to speak. Suddenly one said, You are Doctor Who, aren't you? 
what happens in the next episode. And then there was the time when only minutes after a particularly exciting episode, which left Doctor Who in a tricky predicament, his granddaughter was on the telephone from Pembury with an anxious inquiry after Grandpa. Are you going to be all right? she pleaded. I told her I was going to be rescued and she was very relieved. I didn't tell her anything else, said Mr Hartnell. Every day scores of letters pour into the BBC addressed to Doctor Who. Can I have a Dalek when you're finished? was the urgent wish of one boy. I've saved up ten shillings, he added. But children are not alone. Parents also write to Doctor Who. Can you have it on later, as I always miss the beginning because I'm at work? It is planned to screen the serial for 52 weeks. 8th of February. In the Daily Mail, Lionel Clay writes that the Daleks will be marketed in kit form. Daleks, the space robots which enthralled a million children in Doctor Who, the science fiction serial, are to be marketed by the BBC. It is still to be decided whether they will be in the form of finished models or make-it-yourself kits, a spokesman said. Made from fibreglass and wood, the Daleks are five foot tall and hollow. They move on casters and a child can control them. Hundreds of children wrote to ask what would happen to the Daleks when they disappeared from the series. The BBC finally sent two to Dr Bernardo's homes, keeping two in case they're needed for TV in future. The spokesman went on, The copyright of the Daleks rests with us. They were created by one of our staff designers, Ray Cusick. The latter quote may well have got the attention of Terry Nation's agent, Beryl Virtue, as future dealings involving Dalek merchandise tend to favour the writer, and Cusick himself spends several years with little credit and no remuneration for the design the BBC spokesman is so keen to credit him with here. The article concludes by asking, Unusual for the BBC to market goods? No. There is a department called BBC Enterprises selling programme recordings, black and white minstrel biscuit tins, puppets, books and toy kangaroos inspired by the symbol of the new channel. 10th of February. Blue Peter runs the Dr Bernardo story. Valerie Singleton tells Blue Peter viewers that We've got lots of letters asking what was going to happen to the Daleks that appeared in Doctor Who and where they were going to go. She says, as three Daleks, operated by children from the home, enter the Blue Peter studio, TC2, to the Doctor Who theme. Two Daleks were sent by the BBC to Dr Bernardo's, and it's no good asking for any more because there aren't any. She lied. 13th of February. Verity Lambert receives a note from Val Speyer, her secretary. Madeleine McCulloch of Costing rang. She's a little concerned about the costs for special effects. As sometimes our DDBAs are inadequate, and sometimes they're too much. DDBA is a design department budget allocation. The mooted cost worked out at the planning stage. As far as the rescue is concerned, Speyer says... Originally, the DDBA was for £200, but in a memo to Madeline of 25th 11th 63 from Christopher Barry's office, this was reduced to £50. Now, an outside contract for this episode for £165, 15 shillings, has been received. Therefore, there is an overspending of £105, 15 shillings. Doctor Who, and in particular this story, gets the spoof treatment in children's madcap show, Crackerjack. Rotund, cheeky funnyman Peter Glaze plays the bespectacled operator of a time-travelling pillar box, whilst Leslie Crowther pretends the camera tripod is a Dalek before they encounter the real thing. The Dalek operator on this occasion is Kevin Manser, 
in a skit recorded on the previous day. This will not be Peter Glaze's only brush with Doctor Who this year. 14th of February. On Good Morning Wales on the Welsh Home Service, Terry Nation gives a two-minute interview about his work on the series to interviewer Vincent Kane. 17th of February. Blue Peter is at it again. A pre-recorded item has hosts Christopher Trace and Valerie Singleton showcasing two jolly good models of Daleks, which have been put together by viewers Charles Cresswell and Robert Barton, whom Trace declares are deserving of Blue Peter badges. 27th of February. Everyone's a critic, especially a correspondent in today's Radio Times, who thinks that previous correspondent Janet F. Harris needs a red examining. Lillian Roberts of Chorley, Lancashire, is pretty forthright with her opinion. Several members of our form, the sixth, have to watch Doctor Who with younger brothers and sisters and all agree that after Steptoe it's the funniest programme on television. The Daleks, which look like salt and pepper pots with knobs on and had voices like a bad telephone, were hilarious. And this is the end of the Daleks. At which point the rubber suckers sagged, left me in fits of laughter. My friends experienced similar reactions. There's nothing realistic about the serial. Even the acting's hammy and it doesn't deserve the name of science fiction. The what? The storyline for this section of the story differs considerably from what eventually makes it to screen. Picking up on page 22, this final section of Terry Nation's initial conception of the adventure begins with yet more cave-based jeopardy as a candle carried by the team ignites a jet of natural gas which blasts across their path intermittently, which means they have to guess when to dash across lest they perish in an inferno leading to a tense bit of flame dodging. In fact, a new terror occurs every hundred yards at this point, but they have to press on if they are to arrive in time to coincide with Doctor Who's diversionary attack. All hope is nearly lost when Ian makes a last-ditch exploration and finds a narrow fissure and hears the sound of water. The party squeeze through and emerge into a great chamber where the water from the lake rushes through. They know they are near now. Doctor Who prepares to block off some air vents to the city and make things uncomfortable for the Daleks. But as Ian and his party enter the city, the old man gets careless and he, Susan and a few Thals are captured by the Daleks. The Doctor and co are taken to the Sonic Chamber for the Daleks' particular form of capital punishment. Rising decibels become ultrasonic, driving the victim to madness, then death. With particular venom, the Daleks prolong this agony as much as possible. But with all the Dalek attention on the execution, Ian's party make progress without too much difficulty and reach the central control room. But here, they face real opposition. With the Doctor and Susan's agony reaching its climax, a Dalek moves the sonic control lever to its peak but just as the victims reach the limit of their endurance, the Daleks themselves become lifeless. The sound stops and the lights go out. Ian has succeeded. The Thals treat the vanquished Daleks with compassion and peace talks are held, but the Thals still mistrust the Daleks, and rightly so. Meanwhile, the Doctor studies the Dalek records, which are similar to those of the Thals. 
A Dalek spots two ships approaching on the space radar, but no one really pays them any attention. But the Daleks then launch a counterattack on the control room. Doctor Who stops the fighting when he reveals that neither Daleks nor Thals were actually responsible for the war. Both hemispheres were destroyed simultaneously by an attack from space. And now a force is arriving from afar again, which serves to unify both Dalek and Thal as they prepare to meet the new invaders together. They jointly plan their defence as rockets head towards Scarrow. Doctor Who has found the liquid fuse needed to pilot the TARDIS and decides to leave, but his travelling companions violently disagree with the old man. They've been through enough and they want to see this through to the end. The rockets land and the invaders advance towards the city. Dalek skirmishers fire on the attackers, but their weapons have no effect. Doctor Who observes that despite being fired upon by the Daleks, the new arrivals have not used violence in retaliation. Despite everyone else's concerns, he alone approaches the invaders, unarmed. And so the truth is learned. These new people come from the planet which fired upon Scarrow 2,000 years ago. Since then, their civilization has come to realize the enormity of the crime committed by their forefathers. Waiting until the radiation level on Scarrow had fallen, they have now come to make reparations and help to rebuild the planet. With Scarrow's future now ensured, the TARDIS leaves for new times and distance. Clearly, major changes occur to the story between this part of the otherwise pretty adhered to storyline. And early drafts of the script are obviously a bit closer to this than they are to what we see. However, those drafts do not exist. Now, on to the transmitted episode. Unusually, the writer's credit, unlike the episode's title, is superimposed over new footage of Ian rather than than over the filmed reprise from last week. Get a grip on the rock face, says Ian to the stricken Antidus, whereas in the script he says, swing into the side of the cliff. Thereafter, there is a chunk of excised dialogue that we can no longer discern. The script emphasises that Ganatus has more of a grip on Ian's shirt than anything else, and throughout the action, the shirt starts to tear. Ian's rather harsh line, stop it, you fool, actually comes later in the script when Antidus is cutting the rope, so either William Russell has come in too early or its meaning and placement have been altered. There is a recording pause after the scene in which Antidus falls to his death. Recording picks up with Hartnell against the wall in the Dalek city. Hartnell's brilliantly delivered line, This senseless, evil killing, is a change from the rehearsal script in which he was to say, Then we failed. We're finished. And notice that the Dalek voice in this scene is a tad different from last week. Someone has pressed a different button. Or perhaps it's because it was recorded the day after New Year's Eve. Ganatus appears to have forgotten how to pronounce Elian's name since his friend died at the end of episode 5, referring to him as Elian this week. Instead of saying that Antidus said they would all die, in the script he says of his brother that... He was afraid of things he didn't understand. Ian was to reply, He didn't kill himself because of that fear. You see that, don't you? 
Once he understood, he acted. Bravery is knowing fear and still going on. Don't waste the chance he gave us. That whole speech is excised. Presumably, Terry Nation, watching at home, is devastated. So much so that he uses variations of it in Planet of the Daleks several years later. Nothing is wasted. The Dalek Pipe Room is a static photo caption of a pumping station. The initial special effects document had stipulated that this be a high turbine room. Back with the Thals, who, according to the stage directions, lean it, the mirror, against the tree and look lost, Dione's opening line about the Dalek antenna not having moved for some time is not in the script. Aladdin's observation that the Doctor and Susan must have put it out of action is brought forward a couple of times. It was originally used in his appeal to the other Thals. To help to spell out his conclusion that the old man and his granddaughter must have been captured by the Daleks. We were once warriors. Now they treat us like slaves, he was originally to say, only breaking free of the scripted chains and becoming farmers during rehearsal. The script states that it is the Thal men who find weapons, and the business with the young man producing the metal claw, which is from the Magnodon, they've clearly taken it to bits to make weapons out of it, is actually in the script. Another bit of business doesn't quite make it in. Aladdin faints at him, it says, when the claw is produced. He reacts. Aladdin smiles and turns out of the clearing, followed by the other men. They have become warriors again. Thal women group behind Dione as they watch them go. They watch without waving or saying any words. Clearly, the fighting is men's work on Scaro. In the next scene, with the Doctor and the Daleks, an exchange between the two is excised during rehearsals. You said yourself, we are not like the Thals, says the Doctor. Why do you tell me all this, replies the Dalek, leading to the old man offering to show them the ship. The Doctor was just to tell them that he would refuse to tell them how the ship works, but the finished episode has much more elegant phraseology about the ship's secrets and philosophy of movement. At the end of the scene, the Doctor asks, Can they get here in time? of the Thals. But in the script, he was to say, But can they stop the Daleks in time? Ian and Aladon, upon meeting, were originally to have a bit of a scuffle and to be separated by Christas, with the Thal leader then apologising. I didn't wait to find out who it was. I just... Hmm, clearly he's developing a bloodlust pretty quickly, now that they are warriors again. He loses a line in which he basically tells Ian what we already know about the alarm system and his desire to rescue the Doctor. Ian also loses a line about it being no good going to all this trouble entering the city, only to find the cell they were locked in before. Instead of telling Aladdin that Antidus died bravely, Christus originally was to tell him that we would never have got as far as we have if it hadn't been for Antidus, which isn't strictly true. Still, if heroes do not exist, it is necessary to invent them. The first Thal who is exterminated in the battle is Chris Browning, who is clearly the favoured one of their number to get things to do. He has already doubled for Aladdin in episode 2, and been the only male Thal required last week. He's probably quite happy to have his mind taken off recent travails, as just before production was started on the Daleks, Chris Browning had to defend himself in court, being sued by his former girlfriend, 19-year-old Jennifer Saul, for 
breach of promise. Basically, she is claiming that he had promised to marry her and was now refusing to do so, a claim he strenuously denied. Scaro must have seemed much less stressful in comparison. The countdown does not quite tally with what is in the script, but presumably Nation's numbers there were only a guide. There is a recording break just before the shot from behind of the Dalek as it enters the room and Christus begins to descend from the ceiling on a rope. During the break, two Dalek bases are placed on their sides, facing away from camera, to depict their destruction. And, um, it appears to be Christas smashing the Dalek into a panel that knocks out their power. So whilst he has denied the bromance that he gets with Ian in the novel, Christus and Ian get quite a few moments together, and is actually denied much that is interesting to do at all, it's actually Christas who is the one who delivers the heroic coup de grace in the broadcast story. And if that weren't embarrassing enough for the regulars, Doctor Who also loses a massive speech after the Daleks have died. Yes, the Daleks have now become part of your history, and your war has become part of mine. Strange. You fight bravely, you Thals, but this may not be your final war, you know. In my planet, which is older than yours, we have not yet reached that final understanding whereby all races can live in peace. I'm afraid we must always fight, my friend. Susan was to have said the Daleks produce food by hydroponics, but this is changed to artificial sunlight in the finished episode. Ganatus's line, if only there'd been another way, originally belonged to Aladdin. After they exit the final battle, there is another recording break before everyone goes back to the Thal camp and cleans up a bit. The end scene was originally to begin with the Doctor being gifted the Thal records. Aladon has found others in the Dalek city to complete their history. He was also, when Aladon asks him to stay and advise, to reply with an out of the blue, Until your first war. The rehearsal Doctor really is the obsessed with war Doctor. The Doctor's advice to Aladon is worded slightly differently in the script. Always believe in human kindness, but search for truth only among the stars. It lies out there, you know, if one could only catch up with it. The Doctor refuses to stay with the Thals, partly because I have two uninvited guests to get back to Earth, but this is also dropped in rehearsal. Interestingly, this means that whilst Ganatus knows ladies first, as we discovered last week, Aladdin doesn't know about handshakes. So Ganatus is clearly majoring in Earth etiquette, whilst Aladon is clearly doing his city and guilds in farming at the Thal Academy. The various goodbyes and much of the farewell business, including the Doctor going back for his specimens, don't feature in the script either. Well, apart from some business with Barbara and Ganatus that is cut. When he has given her the material, she says she hasn't anything for him, so he jokingly tries to take it back. Instead, though, in the finished version, the actors go for tenderness. Ganatus is forlorn, I wish we, isn't in the script either, and we'll never know what it is he wishes. But I suppose we can guess. It's a lovely moment, though, and despite limited screen time together, the two of them, Jacqueline Hill and Philip Bond, really pull off the melancholy of their parting. Aladdin was originally to call Ganatus 
old friend when sympathising before the ship takes off, which might have been nicer than what we do get, actually. There is another recording break before the dematerialisation of the ship, and for the first time ever, a photo caption of the TARDIS on the clearing set is used, cross-faded onto the set itself. During the recording break, Carol Ann Ford changes back into her An Unearthly Child costume in order to wear it in the next story. The business in the TARDIS at the end, leading into The Edge of Destruction, was originally to feature a high-pitched, very fast bell sounding. Instead of ending on the juddering console as we do, we were to show doors. They begin to open slowly. The non-speaking Thals all get a credit this week, having not been listed in the closing titles up to now. Well, I say all. Leslie Hill, who is only in episode 3, still gets a credit here. But Franz van Nord, who also only appears in episode 3, does not. As for everybody else, their roles are more specified in the paperwork. And so Chris Browning is Young Thal Man, Katie Cashfield is Young Thal Woman, Vez Delahunt is Older Thal Man, he's the second one to be exterminated in the final battle, whilst Kevin Glennie is Thal Youth, Ruth Harrison, Older Thal Woman, Steve Pokol, Young Thal Man, Jeanette Rossini, Young Thal Woman, and Eric Smith, Older Thal Man. The Who John Lee Playing Aladdin is John Lee, an Australian actor who had come to England in the early 1950s. In 1958, he was at the Belgrade Theatre Coventry under director Lindsay Anderson, working with the likes of Jill Bennett, Daniel Massey and Victor Madden. On television, his Antipodean credentials became useful on ITV's A Man Involved, which featured fellow Australians Madge Ryan and Lloyd Lamble. Established on television, he had starred in The Net in 1962, a series of drama documentaries about immigration officer Jim Howarth. The music was by another Australian who'd make a contribution to Doctor Who, Ron Grainer, and the producer was Christopher Barry. Lee was also known to Sidney Newman, who had produced The Trial of Doctor Fancy for ABC in 1962, which wasn't actually shown until after the Daleks in 1964, due to being held back thanks to its controversial nature. As Dr Fancy himself, Lee was deemed suitably enigmatic and slightly sinister by TV critic Susan Kay. Immediately after the Daleks, he starred in the Deep Blue Sea in Newcastle at the Flora Robson Playhouse, where he gave, according to the stage, a beautifully acted performance. He was never a stranger to genre TV, he appeared twice in Man in a Suitcase, twice in The Avengers, in The Bird Who Knew Too Much in 1967 and The Forget-Me-Not 1968, and three times in Doomwatch. He's the captain saving a stricken aeroplane in the very first episode, The Plastic Eaters, 1970, and then crops up in The Web of Fear, 1971, and Cause of Death, 1972. Throughout the 1970s, he was a familiar face on television appearing in episodes of the afternoon drama Marked Personal, 1974, as a semi-regular in the TV series Warship, appearing in several episodes from the very first in 1973 to the penultimate one of the entire series in 1977, and was opposite John Stride and Julia 
Benny Foster in amateur sleuth drama Wild Alliance in 1978. He was busy on TV in the UK in 1980, but at the end of the year had returned to Australia, appearing in The Last Outlaw about the notorious Ned Kelly and the legendary Prisoner, known over here as Prisoner Cell Block H. He was also back on stage in Melbourne in 1981, playing the central role of Crayon, stern and forceful, according to the age, in Greek drama Antigone. He did plenty of screen work, A Town Like Alice, 1981, and over a hundred episodes of the long-running Cop Shop, and he also did a couple of shows seen in Britain, Return to Eden in 1983 and 1986, and the phenomenon that is Neighbours. He played Len Mangle for a short stint in March and April 1994, having had a single appearance in the soap as chatty customer Graham Clifford nearly a decade earlier. There is a John Lee who appears as an uncredited Mongol warrior in Marco Polo. Common sense has not, alas, been enough to prevent many Doctor Who-related organs to conflate the two men, but they are not the same. Nor is our John Lee the John Lee who appeared in an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond in 1997, but as IMDB currently says he is, let us take this opportunity to blow that out of the water too. His final two roles included the good-humoured sperm donation short Two Girls and a Baby, starring Claudia Carvan in 1998, and as Captain Bildad in the Moby Dick miniseries with Patrick Stewart in 1998. John Lee, a gentleman, husband and constant companion to his wife Jo, and loving father to Joanna, Nicholas, Jonathan and Christopher, died on the 21st of December 2000. He was 72. Marcus Hammond Born John C. Hammond, possibly around 1941, Marcus Hammond studied drama at the Webber Douglas Academy, where he was awarded the Webber Cup the first prize for men of his year, beating Gerald Curtis, with whom he would work in The Daleks, into second place. In his graduation show, the stage admired his sympathetic character and its quiet strength. The following year, he was at Regent's Park Open Air Theatre in Love's Labour's Lost, playing the minor role of the Forester. Edward Petherbridge was Dumaine and Donald Pickering, the King of Navarre. Marcus Hammond got his first taste of repertory theatre later that year, in November, with a season at the Civic Chesterfield, creating a niche for himself in comedic roles, with his season culminating with him taking the title role in Billy Liar. He stayed on for that year's panto, his first, playing Buttons, and, according to the stage, winning young and old with his outgoing personality. He then went to Canterbury for a rep season, including playing the role of Simon Sparrow in Doctor in the House and appearing in the likes of Don't Tell Father, Priestley's Dangerous Corner and Grand National Night at the Marlowe Theatre, with Stephanie Cole also in the company. He broke into television thanks to Christopher Barry, playing a young policeman for him in a September 1963 episode of No Cloak, No Dagger. And whilst he was working on the Daleks, the job he did immediately prior to heading to Scarrow, playing a T-boy in the ABC play The Swindler on December the 15th, 1963, was aired. After the Daleks, Hammond got a few more TV roles under his belt before being taken on for a probationary period to see if he could fill the shoes of Major Zedkar's casualty PC Sweet 
who had been killed off shockingly in the March. Joining in September, after five episodes, Hammond was deemed to have what it took and stayed with the series as PC Taylor until April 1965. In 1966, he had decent roles in a couple of films, Hammer's Plague of the Zombies and Tom Adams' Bond spoof, Where Bullets Fly. He spent most of the decade on TV playing youths thanks to his cherubic appearance, and after a 1970 run in Agony Aunt series Kate, his TV career came to an end in 1971, after an episode of Paul Temple with Richard Herndl and an armchair theatre in which he played another policeman. And there it might have ended, with Hammond joining fellow Thals Jonathan Crane and Gerald Curtis, see last episode of Too Much Information, as apart from an interview in a horror magazine about his work on Plague of the Zombies, Hammond disappeared, with even Actors Union Equity unsure of his whereabouts. However, he was still very active and had been running an art gallery for many years under his birth name, and fortunately, Too Much Information was able to get in touch. When approached to contribute to this podcast, he wrote, Doctor Who from many years ago was a lot of fun for a young actor at the beginning of his career. I guess I've become part of history. I went on to be involved in many theatrical plays on stage in the days of weekly repertory, i.e. performing a play a week for three months. The unions would have a fit these days. In essence, this meant learning a part in three days and having a first night after five days. I remember learning the whole of Macbeth in three days while playing a totally different part at night. We thought nothing of it. Thank you for the photos of Doctor Who. A fond memory. Now retired, Hammond lives in Porlock Weir in Minehead in Somerset. And so ends another episode of Doctor Who. And indeed, another story. We have no exact dates, so a timeline is difficult, but it is worth reiterating here that at the beginning of this story's existence, both Sidney Newman and Donald Wilson expressed concern over its content. Straying, they felt, from the show's remit of educational science fiction and featuring bug-eyed monsters. By the end of its broadcast and subsequent reception, both men, however, were mollified and satisfied that producer Verity Lambert knew what she was doing. And so already, Doctor Who was not my Doctor Who, if you happen to be either of the show's conceivers. A final battle in a BBC TV studio was perhaps never going to match what had been pulled off when all that was required early on was suspense and surprise. But there is at least a sense of scale as Ian's party traverse the corridors in the city and one of them shimmies down a rope in the final attack. Hartnell, unable to look at the Dalek as it begs for help in the climax, is excellent, telling them that even if he wanted to help them, he doesn't know how. And the final end definitely has an impact and a suitable War is Hell vibe, even if the staging is relatively clunky by today's standards. Earlier, there are some beautiful lighting in the cave scenes, notably when the torches begin to fade. And when they get to the city, Barbara becomes the first person in the history of Doctor Who to observe that all the corridors look the same. I'm too old to be a pioneer, although I was once amongst my own people, says the Doctor. 
who displays a wistful envy when contemplating the Thal's task of rebuilding a whole new world. And then they are off, unaware that this is very much the beginning of an association with Skaro and its denizens that will last the lifetime of the series. More importantly, it proves that the bug-eyed monsters so feared by Sidney Newman and Donald Wilson are exactly what the audience want, and that by the time the decade is out, their original conception of Doctor Who will have been all but, ahem, exterminated. But like the first story, this required a number of people to be at the top of their game. Terry Nation, by his own admission a lazy man in it for the money, nailed how to deliver workable stories quickly and is, at this stage in the show, exactly what is needed by script editor David Whittaker, who himself seems to have been more than capable of putting the philosophical heart and thoughtful muscle onto Nation's solid skeleton of a script. Designer Raymond Cusick, of course, not only makes the Dalek creatures squat, alien machines of menace, they are quite unlike the cardboard-tubed, silver-sprayed men in suits, frankly everyone, even the pioneering technical bod of the team, Mervyn Pinfield, expected. And then there are brilliant performances from voice geniuses Peter Hawkins and David Graham, who are of course aided by the special sounds master, Brian Hodgson. Hodgson not only modulated the voices, but came up with the weird, disorienting echo of the city, which, with its Dalek-shaped doors and off-kilter shooting, is another visual triumph too. So whilst the Thals might be a blandish lot, though Philip Bond is game and energetic as Ganatus, and the trip to the city quite drawn out, this is still more than just the first time we meet the Daleks. It's a story with a moral, with a thoughtful idea at its core, which asks our heroes to be heroes by doing what may be more pragmatic than right. Of course, they wouldn't have even tried to be heroes had the Doctor's own meddling curiosity not prompted a dishonest act. The Thals may be goodies and the Daleks baddies, but there are plenty of shades of grey amongst the black and the white on Skaro. The regulars each get their moment to shine and there are some fabulous visual flourishes. Maybe next time though, they can record the opening instalment of a story without having to do it again. Oh, and 500 years of destruction end in this. Doctor Who, The Rescue, also featured Marcus Hammond as Antidus, Jonathan Crane as Christus, Virginia Wetherill as Dione, David Graham and Peter Hawkins as the Dalek Voices, and Robert Jewell, Kevin Manser, Peter Murphy and Gerald Taylor as the Daleks. With Chris Browning, Katie Cashfield, Bez Delahunt, Kevin Glennie, Ruth Harrison, Leslie Hill, Steve Pokol, Jeanette Rossini and Eric Smith as the Thals. The title music was by Ron Grainer with the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. The incidental music by Tristram Carey. The story editor was David Whittaker. The costumes were supervised by Daphne Dare. Makeup by Elizabeth Blattner. The designer was Raymond Cusick. The associate producer was Mervyn Pinfield. Coming next, the TARDIS crew awake after the explosion to find both themselves and the ship acting suspiciously. Are they going mad? Are they on a journey to destruction? 
or do they have two episodes to fill without the money the new sets and the guest cast? That's next time on Doctor Who. Too much information. Next episode, The Edge of Destruction or The Dark Places of the Inside of the Spaceship. Too Much Information, The Rescue, was written and presented by me, Toby Haydock. With thanks to Richard Bignall, David Brunt, Peter Crocker, Ben Jolly, John Kelly, Graham Kimmel-White, Simon Guerrier, Richard Marson, Edmund Pegg and Marcus Hammond. Additional voices were provided by Chrissy Bone, the series consultant is Richard Bignall and the music has been specially composed by Wayne Shepherd. There is a supplemental podcast, one per story as opposed to per episode, called Far Too Much Information that is for now exclusive to patrons. There are far too much information episodes on the prehistory of Doctor Who as well as the pilot, the first episode and the first four script versions of An Unearthly Child. There will shortly be a far too much information on this story, The Daleks, featuring correspondence between the Doctor Who team and the Blue Peter team, and telling you everything you need to know about those non-speaking Thals in the background. Patrons qualify for bonus material, early releases, and much, much more. Oh, and there are pictures of my dog as well. I know. Patrons are also nearly six months ahead with my Happy Times and Places podcast, so if you want to hear veteran fan Ian K. McLachlan talking about watching The Daleks' Master Plan the first time around, or serious scriptwriter Paul Cornell extolling the virtues of the Curse of Peladon, then head over there right now. References I've consulted various reference works for this podcast. Doctor Who, A Complete History, edited by John Ainsworth and Mark Wright, with contributions from Jonathan Morris, Alistair McGowan and Richard Atkinson, and much of it based on, of course, those fantastic archives features by Andrew Pixley. Richard Bignall's Nothing at the End of the Lane interviewed designer Jeremy Davis and poured over much early paperwork and is a fantastic and detailed look at the unturned stones of Doctor Who's early years. How Stammers and Walkers, The Sixties and The First Doctor Handbook are both excellent and uncovered much of what we now take for granted. Ditto J. Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who The Early Years. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's Complete History of Time Travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference too. And I also subscribe to the British newspaper archive, Ancestry.com and Newspapers.com, which are vital resources, but also places that are very easy to get lost in for several days, so proceed with caution. I would also like to acknowledge the production notes on the BBC DVD of this story, which are by Martin Wiggins. I walk in the shadows of giants, albeit giants, with an unhealthy attitude to detail and arcana. And finally, I would like to thank the patrons who make these podcasts possible. And they include Luke Atkins, Peter Adamson, Kevin Ashelford, Will Brooks, Rick Byatt, 
Robin Bland, Alex Cafajoglu, Paul Carnahan, Andy Case, John Curley, Mark Dakin, John Ellidge, Gary Gillett, James Gould, David and David, both I think anonymous, but if uh, I'm just reading your name out, David, and you go, where's my surname? You might be one of the two Davids whose surname I think I'm not supposed to be reading out, but correct me if I'm wrong. Jenny at Blue Box 99, Paul Carrington, Paul Cook, Richard Chalk, Peter Crocker, Rob Dawson, John Deere, Chris Dunford-Kelk, Paul Dunn, Jason Gorman, Siobhan Galichon, Ian Key, Joe Llewellyn, Darren Mackay, Adam Parker, Barry Platt, Risto Matti Sarillo, David Trainier, Peter Burns, Peter Harness, Ronald Hayden, Rob Leonard, Stephen Moffat, Richard Straw, Nick Tedston, Ruben Herfindel, Mark Aldridge, Kit Allen, Sebastian Apriel, Tilt Ariser, Simon Ash, Richard Alt, Stephen Bamford, Barbaramus Banks, James Bell, and Peter Blackett. If you would like to join that list of patrons, please go, as I said, to patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. For as little as £3 a month, you can get access to early and bonus material. There's lots of exclusives there, and most of the stuff is available at the lowest tier, £3, which you can also get a 10% discount on if you sign up for a year in one go. I know that a monthly commitment might seem like a lot, but you can also go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock if you just want to make a one-off donation. Uh, but look, I know that times are tough and they're going to get tougher. But what you can do that costs absolutely nothing, and I'd be so grateful for, is if you could go to iTunes and wherever else you get your podcasts from and give these a five-star rating. It really does help to get these noticed by passing customers because there's a lot of Doctor Who podcasts out there and a five star really really does help so do a few lines of review saying what these are about and what you like about them as I say that really tickles the algorithms and there's nothing an algorithm likes more than a good old tickling and as I say costs you nothing but a little bit of your time for which I would be most grateful You can follow me on Twitter at Toby Haydoke, Haydoke is H-A-D-O-K-E, and at Haydoke Podcasts, uh, which is the stream for just this stuff and not my feeble attempts at humour. Although if you like my feeble attempts at humour, I'm also a stand-up comedian at Excess Malarkey Comedy Club in Manchester, which runs every Tuesday from 8pm and is a live show. We also do it online once a month on the first Sunday of every month on twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey. That's uh, the live version, uh, which is on Tuesdays, and the internet version, which is also live, but you can also watch it later. There's an archive up there because we started doing online shows during the pandemic when we couldn't uh, we couldn't actually get inside the venue, and we've continued doing those to sort of reach reach to the wider world. And if you are in the wider world and can't get to Manchester, twitch.tv forward slash excess malarkey there's an archive up there of some international comedians doing some great stuff uh, and examples of the show from the past you know 18 months or so plus the broadcast at 8 p.m gmt on the first sunday of every month